The Ku Klux Klan loomed large in Colorado in the 1920s. In Denver alone, a third of white men were registered members. But that means two-thirds were not. Journalist-turned-novelist Patricia Raybon used that as a point of departure for her new book, A Mystery, called All That Is Secret. Her detective, Annalie Spain, is a black theologian who returns to her hometown, Denver, to find out who killed her father. But the town is teeming with Klansmen, and solving the murder might result in her own. All That Is Secret is our latest selection for Turn the Page. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Patricia Raybon answers my questions and our audiences today. And Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You say that you write at the crossroads of faith and race. And that's how Annalie Spain, your protagonist, was born. How so? Who is she? I didn't know this at first, Ryan, but she's the face of a young woman of color struggling to figure out herself, figure out her faith, and figure out her place in a place of prejudice while also solving a mystery. While also solving a mystery. And she's not someone who necessarily goes to church anymore. Not since her estranged father was murdered, prompting in her confusion about why that would happen, why her God would allow it, and now what she's supposed to do about that God. The crossroads of faith and race. I mean, that's really where you've lived your life as well, isn't it? Sometimes I say, I was born on a pew. <laughs> and, and somebody asked me one time, you were? But uh, that's how I described how much time my family spent inside the doors of a church. So that's figurative, not literal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you were raised going to church. It was really almost the only place we could go. I was talking to my husband recently about this, how in his town, he could only go to amusement parks on one day of the week. He couldn't go to swimming pools in many places in the country. The one place that was literally, speaking of literalisms, was the church, was bla- the church, the black church. The black church was open no matter the day, no matter the time. Right. So it was a holy place, but then it was a place under siege because when I was a young child, the church bombing started in the South. So even that safe place felt um, targeted too. You grew up in Colorado, Patricia? Yes. Yeah. In Northeast Denver, in a little black church, Ryan, that originally was a Jewish synagogue. And, uh, a conversion of the building, essentially. Of the building. And that was where we spent our time, at home and at church. I know that Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie were influential when you were coming up. Sherlock on PBS. I'm curious if you saw black sleuths as a kid, though. I didn't, because I didn't know to look. Does that mean they were out there, you just didn't see them? They were out there born, many of them, during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. And so I didn't know that that was an option for me. And then when I left home and went away to college, I was reading James Baldwin and 
Toni Morrison and Tony K. Bambera and Richard Wright, I was looking for myself. Mm-hmm. That was the puzzle I was trying to solve. So I wasn't really reading mystery novels then as I do now. Well, and you spent a career and continue to in journalism. This is your first novel. It's your first mystery. I'll just mention that clergy mysteries are a whole subgenre. Just a fun fact, the Father Dowling mysteries were filmed for a time in Denver. Did you know that? I did not know no. that. But you indeed say that you grew up on a pew. And I'm curious how your religious upbringing informed your career as a journalist and now a novelist. Does a religious upbringing somehow connect you to stories or storytelling? Yes. I grew up in a little Sunday school room in Northeast Denver on the south side. I mentioned that because people in Colorado know if you're in the south side of a building with a window, that it's a sunny room. It's a, a welcoming place. And my teachers taught us the stories of the Bible on felt boards. And I don't know if anybody listening remembers felt boards, but felt boards allowed these little children to cut out figures from the stories and place them on the boards. And then we would tell ourselves the stories. So early on, I was marinated in stories, taught that this is a place where you're going to learn a lesson about life. You don't have a takeaway. Back, nobody called it that back then. But every Sunday, there was a takeaway to, and a coloring sheet and these uh, felt figures that we would place on the boards and learn the heroes of the Bible and the acts of the apostles and, and then learn about life and how we were supposed to live it. So you were born really in a soup of storytelling. I yeah. was given permission to embrace the format of learning. Here's a way to learn. And for that reason, I don't imagine that fiction feels frivolous to you. When I was a journalist at the Denver Post, uh, soon after I was there, I left the city desk and went up to the features department. I saw a note on the bulletin board one day for an opening in the features department. And I decided to apply for the position and suddenly went from telling stories about facts to stories about feelings. Hmm. And I found that place early in my career. And the other thing is that was when long-form journalism was having its heyday. And so we would write, we were encouraged to write these long Sunday page one stories about issues and people and problems and challenges without limit. And so the storytelling background just kept getting affirmed and affirmed and affirmed. It's good practice for writing a book. You've written many books, by the way. It's just that this is the first fiction. fiction. All right. To your protagonist, Annalise Bain, her father, a cowboy, is pushed from a train. She's living in Chicago, teaching at a small Bible college when she gets the news, and she decides to hightail it to Denver. But it's going to be a challenge to pay her way because she's barely scraping by as a fledgling educator. Tell us about the Denver she arrives in. How powerful is the KKK in the 1920s? The Klan is ruling the roost. 
the leaders from Atlanta had come up to Colorado at the same time that a man named John Galen Locke, a homeopathic physician from New York, had come to Colorado after World War I hmm. looking for a way to establish his uh, political influence. And he looked around, saw the Klan. They were looking for a leader, and he stepped into it. So the Klan in Colorado was really a Southern transplant. Do I have that right? Well, one could say that about the Klan everywhere, but it took local people to make it happen. And very soon, in every county in Colorado, there were Klan claverants. Leaders from the governor on down were dues-paying members of the Klan. People talk about the mayor of Denver, Ben Stapleton. They talk about the governor, Clarence Morley. But think about police chiefs and sheriffs and jury commissioners and any number of elected officials, uh, school board uh, leaders all over the state. As part of your research, you listen to old interviews, including one from 1962 with Otto Moore, a former city attorney who prosecuted Klansmen. I want to listen to a clip that I know you listened to as well from the Denver Public Library's Western Voices collection. Uh, here, Otto Moore reflected on the Klan's size in Colorado and indeed how they grew so big. Uh, but the Klan just took hold, that's all. It mushroomed. Uh, people sensing power, they worked through the Republican Party, they took possession of the Republican Party, they worked in the precincts, their leaders attended the caucuses, and uh, beginning at the very bottom, they gained control uh, practically 100% of the Republican Party at that time. In any event, by 1924 and 25, uh, the Klan had reached a position of terrific uh, political strength. Uh, they, their meetings were at that time held on North Table Mountain, out on West Colfax. There was a narrow paved road uh, on, leading to North Table Mountain. And I think their meetings, if I remember, were on Monday nights. Uh, it was an absolute physical impossibility at any time from 6.30 on a Monday night until as late as 9 o'clock to go but one direction on that highway. But you are just as interested, Patricia Raybon, in those who did not join the Klan, the white Protestant men, who, despite the pressure to join, the business pressure, the social pressure, did not. What were you able to find out about them? Well, I appreciate the question because in Colorado, as you know, we talk a lot about the number of people, all the people who joined. But people who didn't, Martin Luther King says it this way, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And so I think, Ryan, about those two-thirds of white Denver men who did not join the Klan, but also weren't actively fighting it. There were a few who, who did. Sidney Whipple was editor of the Denver Express newspaper, the managing ed editor of the Rocky Mountain News. George Norland at the University of Colorado pushed back when the Klan demanded that he fire any Jewish or Catholic faculty. He said no, even though the Klan ruled legislature, the budget to the University of Colorado. 
he scrambled around and found a way to keep the university going. But most of the people lived very comfortably not fighting back, not joining the Klan, but not pushing back. That's a lesson for all of us, looking back then, but also looking at what's happening in in the country now. Are we part of the two-thirds who are silent and not standing up to say, we're not going to live like this, we're not going to take this? A lot of people were complacent. There are are a fair number of, of white characters in your book, I think, who comfortably rest in the two-thirds who said nothing and who do so surrounded by creature comforts and a lot of money, well-heeled in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood, part of the setting for this book, in addition to Five Points, sort of Harlem of the West. You write of the Klan. They're afraid of being afraid, losing control of a world they never controlled in the first place. How did those words come to you? I tried to find ways to explain a homegrown hate group to put into a soundbite an explanation for how something like that could happen. It's hard, and I'm still not sure that they completely capture what happens to people who allow their uh, feelings to get stirred up. You know, in in Colorado, Ryan, there's a lot of talk about the Klan being an aberration. Hmm. And in thinking about it, clearly it wasn't an aberration. The grand dragon of the Klan was able to tap into some existing feelings of anti-black, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic sentiment. Your detective, Annalise Spain meets a strapping young pastor (laughs) while she's in Denver. Toe-curling, somebody described. (laughs) Toe-curling. He's a military veteran, and it gives you the chance to weave in the history of the Harlem Hellfighters. Who were they? They were assigned to the 369th Infantry Regiment of the U.S. Army during World War I, a segregated unit that until up until Harry Truman desegregated the army existed. In fact, there's still a 369th Infantry Regiment, Mm. but it was all black, all segregated, no respect by their own army. And so in Europe, as World War I began to rage, the black soldiers were told they weren't smart enough, good enough, brave enough to fight. And they were given jobs like being a stevedore or carrying things around, cooking those non-fighting jobs. Well, the French, who had already fought with Somalis and other African troops, took a look at all of these strapping young African-American men and said, you can certainly fight with us. And so my character was in among those who fought on the front line for the French and were awarded the French medals. Your book reminded me of a fundamental truth about racism, that it limits people's potential. If you are not allowed to be fully realized because of who you are, the world loses out on your gifts. One of your characters, a black maid, says, that's what I'm afraid of, a wasted life. Do you share her fears? 
Have you shared her fears, Patricia? I've shared the pain of them. I've shared the frustrations. What I share most, and this is what I try to uh, show in my lead character, is the daily insult of anti-Black bigotry. The reminder every day that you're not enough and you'll never be enough. And the soul-killing nature of the casual racism in America. I have written about that a lot in my nonfiction books to the extent that this time I wanted to just write a story. But once I started the story, the same problem was there Mm. for my character. And I knew to make it palatable as, as a novel that the mystery element would lift us out of that soul-killing experience to um, journey with her to solve the mystery. So the color line is a constant theme in the book. And while a gumshoe might want to be inconspicuous, Annalise Bain is anything but as a black woman navigating Denver with a young white boy whom she's committed to protect. Uh, this is the character of a, of a young Eddie. Is he her Watson is Eddie the equivalent of Watson in Sherlock? He's, he's not her Watson yet, although I was talking to my husband about this today, and he thinks that needs to happen in some later books. You say yet, and you say later books, because this is the start of a series. Yes. So I went from having to finish one book to writing three. <laughs> and uh, so Eddie will show up again. He it will be a recurring character. But exactly yes. what space he'll occupy, we're not quite sure. Right. He's partly because of his age. He's growing and and looking for himself just as Annalie is. She's young, too. She's just, you know, in her early 20s. Do you want to say a few words about the name Annalie without giving too much away? Can you do that? Can we do that (laughs) elegantly? (laughs) Yeah. The thing about novels is when you start talking about them right away, you're thinking, is this this a spoiler? So it really is hard to talk about her name. Okay. Let's leave it there. Okay. Let's leave a mystery. Yes. In this mystery. (laughs) All right. Let's take some questions from our fellow readers. Carla Foote of Denver wants to know, Patricia, you came to writing fiction from experience as a journalist and then a nonfiction writer. How has your journalism background helped you in fiction? And how might it be a challenge? Journalists spend time with words every day. And so that was a priceless help to know how to write a sentence, something like that. A compelling one. Yeah. Well, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you it's compelling. Now, the flip side of her question, how might it be a challenge to have come to fiction from nonfiction? Here is the first challenge. When I had a fiction editor look at my manuscript, she said, I love this story. I'm enjoying it so much. But do you know your attribution is just like a reporter? You know, every time you need to say who said something. And so I was writing it in a journalistic Very way. Very reporterly. Right. Uh-huh. I had to back off of that. <laughs> what, so what's a turn of phrase you had to get comfortable with? You had to leave behind said Anna Lee, right? And the, and the kind of confines of that. So in the world of fiction, instead of saying Anna Lee said, you show what Anna Lee did. So she says what... Your character says what they're saying, 
and then they yank off their coat or they throw down the coffee cup so that you you don't have to say said angrily you show you show you show you don't tell Poverty and the wealth gap are prominent in this novel. Who has money? Who has access? Who has votes? And while it's set in the early 1920s, it really does strike me that there are themes that feel thoroughly modern. So did those tapes I listened to at the Denver Public Library. The archive tapes. People are worried about the same things. They are saying the same things essentially to one another. And the haves have, and the have-nots are bringing up the rear. That was true then, that's true now. And often people falling into those buckets are people of color because of limitations, opportunities not being available, closed doors, barriers to getting ahead. It strikes me that really Joe Spain, the cowboy father who's murdered, and his daughter, Annalise Spain. Generationally, they represent, I don't know, do you think like progress, that the next generation might take the ball a little further than the previous? What do you see in their dynamic? They do represent that. You know, this is not a slave narrative, for example. I, there have been many that are wonderful. And so I don't say that in a disparaging way, but I wanted to move into the next era. And so her father is old enough to have been born a slave. And she, of course, is a freeborn black woman in the 20s in a decade that is stretching out and people are innovative and trying new things. They have telephones and radios and and things like that. And I think of the energy of Five Points at that time. Yes. And the artistry at that time. Right. So to answer your question, we are always moving forward. But the dynamic in a culture where bigotry is so embedded always drags people back. We're in that now. And that was true of that era, too. So were you daunted listening to those tapes? Well... I was grateful for the archivist. I was grateful for the information. And our job now is to go back and listen and learn. Okay, I believe we have someone who's going to hop up on our virtual podium to ask a question. Okay. Jody Mueller, Golden, Colorado. First, I'd like to say that I think the theology parts were handled very well, and it was very refreshing to read in a novel uh, somebody who is getting the theology correct. (laughs) Um, But what I'm curious about is whether those thoughts that are expressed would have been uh, the way theology would have been taught back in 1923, or if there would have been different ideas about all of those issues, but in particular, about the value of an individual person? In other words, would it be about the relationship with God as opposed to sin management? Well, I love that question, Jody, because one of the things that I believe this book shows is the difference between Black theology and white Southern Christian theology, which informs, continues to inform groups like the Klan. And my observation is that Those two theologies are very different and always have been. 
And so in the black church, the, as you call it, sin management is not something that I have ever heard emphasized in the way that I know it's emphasized in white evangelicalism, for example. We had a a pastor who used to say that African-Americans appropriated the faith that they learned from slaveholders for their own needs. And what the African-American person of faith needed was deliverance and liberation. Sin management was the other guy's problem, Hmm. was the slave owner's problem. So that probably is what you were observing, that Annalie isn't talking so much about, like she says at one point about sin, she says, I don't think I've ever even said the word out loud. And so part of that reflects how people experience faith so differently based on their existential reality. Jody, a question for you. You complimented Patricia Raybon on getting the theology right. Uh, that sounds like it's important to you. Do you see novels? Do you see uh, art in general getting it wrong a lot? I do. Of course, uh, <laughs> I too am addicted to British mysteries. And they seem to take great delight in, first off, making anybody who is in the clergy a fool, with perhaps the exception of the Father Brown series. But that is not Chesterton's Father Brown. That is, you know, the scriptwriter's theology. Hmm. So it was, like I said, just refreshing to hear somebody who was actually where the theology was important, not just to the storyline, but to the characters. Jody, thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Jody. Oh, you're welcome. We're going to have someone else pop up onto the podium now. Barbara Fricks in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my question is a writing question or a story question. Did you know Anna Lee would end as such a strong, independent woman when you started the novel? Or is that something that developed as you told her story? I didn't know. Barbara, but very early I had to learn it, that readers of novels are looking for heroes. They're looking for people who are going to do the daring, inspiring thing. And so after a couple of editing passes, each time I had to ante up her attitude and her gumption to make her somebody that readers could cheer for and care about. And of course, Barbara, the benefit to the writer is then you begin to dig into those things in yourself too. So that, you know, writing the novel, that just, it's life-changing. So Annalie helped transform you too. I had no idea that I'd have to be gutsier and more find some places of courage in myself just to finish the story well. Barbara, it strikes me that at the beginning, Annalie is, is rather unsure of herself, especially as a detective. I mean, she's, Patricia, she doesn't come into this as a detective. She comes into this as a, as a scholar. Right. Who, on the side, like Sherlock Holmes stories, and actually doesn't use his form of detection to figure out the mystery in the end. But in order to get to the end and get to, you know, mysteries about solving a puzzle. And so for her, in order for her to do that, she had to uh, dig deep and find places in herself that let her go to a clan meeting, by, you know, at night, <laughs> you know, alone. Things that most of us would not do. 
let me just share uh, to piggyback off of Barbara's question. Annalise Spain's philosophy of sleuthing, um, we get glimpses of it in, in just this wonderful writing. To quote the book, stop trying so hard. Let the answers find their way to you. Uh, she tells herself at one point, detectives let crimes solve themselves. Uh, elsewhere, she explains to a friend, solving a murder is not about crime. It's about finding fear and greed. And well, it's about lust. <laughs> Detection is about lust. So, Barbara, you sensed uh, a real arc with Annalise Bain. Yeah. And the ending for her could have gone one direction. And you chose the stronger direction, the more independent direction. It was a twist that really made, made me root for her as a very strong, independent woman of the 20s. And I'm trying not to spoil anything. <laughs> <laughs> but you were rooting for a hero, just as Patricia said. Thank you so much, Barbara. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we need that to go, first of all, for there to be a second and third book. She's, she needs to go that direction. And I, I believe, you know, readers enjoy that more. I love words. I'm just, I love learning new vocabulary. And you sprinkle signs of what decade it is, the 1920s, all over the book. The Chesterfield, a kind of sofa. The Biermeyer, also a kind of couch. Bruffman? I guess it was one of the early open-cabbed cars. Did I mention that? Did you I do. use that? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> a Mackinac is a type of coat. Yes. A Marcel curling iron. Yes. Were these things you knew already, or did you have to like look at household items of the 1920s? All of that. The research was really micro and macro. I had a scene where Joe Spain is, unzips his jacket and then I, after a little research, realized zippers were not used in clothing that commonly back then. So away went the zipper. Okay. <laughs> Same with the, there's a car driving scene in the book. And um, I spent a lot of time on YouTube watching people drive cars from that era. And so the gas pedal is not on the floor. So I had to do some rewriting so that it's on the steering wheel. And that's where the throttle was. We have a question from Sharon Guype from Surprise, Arizona. Boy, you could set a novel there, couldn't you? Uh, how much of Annalie is a reflection of Patricia herself? Or is she perhaps based on someone Patricia knows? Annalie is her own person. And I appreciate the question because I, at one point, tried a draft in first person, using the, the word I, the first person I. Right. And after a couple of chapters, I thought, this is going to be about me, and I don't want that. I want her to be her own self. So we ended up, I say we, my editing team, ended up uh, writing a, what's called a limited third person point of view. Limited third person. Right. So that's not omniscient narrator. That's a bit different. No. So the narrator knows only what Annalise thinking okay. and is writing in third person. Oh, that's fascinating. So where she is gutsy, part of that I borrowed from uh, my late mother, who took no prisoners. My late mother was a phys ed teacher and was a strong-minded, opinionated, and almost had no filter. <laughs> <laughs> and so I borrowed some of that for Annalise. She was a physical education teacher? Yes, in Denver. Did, did she make you do like jumping jacks as a kid? No, but she um, <laughs> was, well, strong-minded. 
<laughs> I think I want to unpack a little bit more there. Was she fun? Yeah, she was fun because she could um, swim. She swam laps up until her 80s. She could swim and uh, hit balls and manage a gym full of kids with a look. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine, soft-voiced me, I was intimidated by her. But I love my mother. I love both my late parents for what they put up with, what they endured. Here is something that mystery writers never seem to explain. In order to have a detective, they have to constantly run into chaos. They just happen to be around when the worst (laughs) happens. I always felt this, especially about Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote. Uh (laughs) You know, she lives in a small seaside town, and yet she always seems to be right there when someone is offed. Do you ever feel you have to explain that? No, because I think we as readers, readers of stories are in our bones, and we understand that the story doesn't engage us unless there's trouble. So know? that's sort of the pact we have with the writer. Right. And, the with, understanding. and with the story uh-huh. and with the mystery. Uh, the other thing, of course, about the mystery is that it promises resolution It promises that the puzzle will be resolved and that some form of justice will be done. I crave that right now. I crave resolution. Yes. I crave justice. Right. All right. We have a question from our virtual podium. I'm Laura Padgett. My husband, Keith, is with me. We live in Montrose, Colorado. Patricia, the question I have for you is the history that you are explaining here that you have in the archives, that you have historically, that those of us that grew up in Colorado and have been working in justice uh, situations for quite a while now, we know this is true. We know this happened. And it is part of our history. Right now, the pushback that we're getting from trying to have critical race theory taught is something that frightens me And I'm wondering if you're getting any kind of pushback on the fact that you are presenting what really happened, not in a way of making people feel guilty, but in a way of saying, this is what happened. We need to know about it so we can stop it and don't repeat it. Thank you for your question. I love thinking about it because the CRT, that's, you know, we're all using that term now, the pushback on critical race theory, suggest that history can be buried. And Faulkner, Ryan, he's the one who said, the past is never dead. In fact, it's never past. And so, you know, there was a church in Tennessee burning books. Some You probably saw that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, what a futile exercise. Or, or even counterproductive, right? It's drawing attention to books that then <laughs> I yes. have a fire to read, yeah, you know? Precisely. The stories and the truth can be attacked. Efforts can be made to burn it, uh, suppress it, hold it back. Story is too powerful to hold it back. And so while I agree with Laura that it's distressing to see laws made limiting how black history is taught, for example, 
what happens uh, as a result is that more people write more stories. Hmm. More people sing more songs. More people tell, write uh, poetry. I was thinking about Mary Oliver's poem this morning. What are you going to do with your one wild, precious life? What we do is keep telling more stories. To Laura's question about getting pushback, have you felt any pushback? A little. On Twitter, somebody wrote me and saw a description of my book and said, oh, all the anti-white people will love this one. And I actually responded to the lady and said, not at all. That's not what this book is about. And tried to have a conversation with her. But I keep my eyes and ears open because I have one book that has been banned in the by the Texas Department of Corrections. My, my first book on racial forgiveness is called My First White Friend. And inmates there were trying to get a hold of the book, and the Texas Department of Corrections banned it. So, you know, it's not an idle topic for me. Hmm. And I suppose someone could look at this book and say, this needs to come off of a list. But again, when that happens, it just generates more interest. When you write, do you think about the race of the reader? Do you think this is a book for a white audience or a black audience or a brown or a blue audience? I mean, does that occur to you? With my nonfiction books, I did. Because I was trying to make a point. Uh And, you know, I was on, speaking of podiums, you know, on a soapbox. But I went to fiction precisely because I wanted to give myself a break. We were in a pandemic, and I love mysteries. And so I said to myself, I'm going to complete a mystery that I had already started for to give myself a break. So I wasn't thinking about race in terms of the audience. I did ultimately, though, had to lean into who my core audience is. Mm. And I... That's hard to know when you're writing something for the first time, though. Right. And the other thing, you know, every writer wants everybody to read their book, but that's not how it works. So most of my readers are women. My core readers are women of faith, women who have faith in their background, who also love a good mystery. Hmm. But faith is about a mystery. It's the ultimate mystery, isn't it? It's the ultimate mystery. I guess I can say this. That they, I'll say something about that, Ryan. The Apostle Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly. That's, that was his phrase, uh, old King James version of phrase. We, we can't see on the other side. We see through a glass darkly. When you write about faith, do you get slapped with a label? Oh, she's a Christian author. Yes. Yes? By some. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. I, in fact, am honored to be here with you tonight because some people refuse to review the book because they said, oh, it's a Christian mystery. Hmm. And so I was distressed by that because my faith system has been under a lot, (laughs) rightfully so, under a lot of attack recently for some very negative things. Annalie doesn't come out of that particular community. A shaming community. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think others have uh, been able to embrace her story. I mean, I'll tell you, as a gay Jew reading the book, there were moments where I paused and I thought, Mm -hmm. can I I see myself, can I see the acceptance of someone like me in this? Yes. I, I did not feel turned away. Yes. And I think 
that speaks a little bit to what you're trying to achieve. Do you think that's that's true? Yes, right. Uh-huh. Thank you for saying that. Charles Kraft of Boulder wants to know about your love of mysteries in your adult years and whether it might have been influenced by African-American writers like Barbara Neely. I love Barbara Neely. She has written a, a character named Blanche White, which is, if you know French. White White. Right. Yeah. <laughs> have you read the Barbara Neely I have mysteries? not. I have not. But you spoke there to the francophone in me, so now I have to add it to my list. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I actually confess to being partial to the British mysteries because I just enjoy masterpiece mysteries on PBS. Mm. And so many of them are British mysteries and are and they have not yet dramatized an African-American author. But it's time, right? Boy, it feels like time. Yes. There's a part of me that just thinks, well, you should uh, maybe leapfrog ahead <laughs> and have Annalise Spain brought to the screen before <laughs> Blanche White. <laughs> Do, I mean, would, would you like that? Oh, I'd love that. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. We're putting yeah. the word out then? Right, Okay. <laughs> Early on in the book, I think it's in the first chapter, Annalie is aboard a train, and she's risking the same fate that her father faced. She might be thrown from a train. And she says, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Those words are so fraught right now, and it made me wonder if that was planned. It wasn't planned. It came to me... Because of the scene, keeping in mind, this is the George Floyd summer. As you're writing. As I'm writing. But I can honestly say to you, Ryan, that I didn't deliberately say to myself, oh, you better use these words. They were already there. And they were already there because that is part of the reality, the existential reality of being a person of color in a majority white world at this time. Every day there's a moment where you can say, I can't breathe. This is too hard. This is too tough. And indeed, that was happening to her as well. In the 1920s. Yes. Mm -hmm. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Patricia Raybon of Aurora. The first book in her new Annalise Spain mystery series is called All That Is Secret. It was our pick for Black History Month and for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. We'll announce our June selection very soon.